Well, good morning, Brookside. It's great to see all of you. Hope you're having a really great morning today. And uh, yeah, I know Rob just said, but if you're a guest with us this morning or just visiting, we're so excited that you're here. We really are. We, we're blessed to have you. We hope you have a great experience here this morning. We'd love for you to come back. Um, my name is Brad Zook, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm not normally up here. It's great to be up here this morning. And I don't think it's been mentioned yet, veterans. It's Veterans Day. And so if you're a veteran, we just, we'd love to honor you. Could you even, would you stand up if you've served our country in any of the branches of the military? We are so blessed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for serving our country. And uh, wow, I've really been loving this Best News Ever series. So we've been diving into the book of Luke. This is, I think, week nine. And uh, just loving, taking a close, up close and personal look at the life and the teaching of Jesus. And so uh, we're sort of winding down. As Rob said, next week is significant, but just two weeks left in this series. But then we actually circle back around to the beginning of Luke when we hit December. We skipped that part um, when we started this series because that's the Christmas story. And so excited to dive into that as we get into December. This morning we come to Luke 18, and we're also going to look at Luke 11 because of being similar passages in the topic of prayer. What does Jesus have to teach us on the topic of prayer? And so to start, let me just ask the very, very simple question, maybe the obvious question, what is prayer? And so on the one hand, of course, many of us would say, well, prayer is just talking to God. And Yes and amen. That is absolutely right. That's a great definition of prayer. Prayer is just talking to God. It doesn't need to be formal. In fact, the overall message of the Bible is that it, it probably shouldn't be so formal. And it's just talking to God. That's what prayer is. But on the other hand, prayer is something much, much deeper. That prayer, I think, is a clue to what's really in your heart. That prayer, in fact, shows you who you really are when you pray. You, you reveal sort of the most in-depth parts of your soul. Prayer shows you what you were built for. You know, one of the most interesting things about prayer is that it's almost an involuntary reflex of the human soul. That no matter what you believe, no matter how unbelieving you are, you've probably prayed. And so this morning, what we'll find in these passages straight out of Scripture is that we should approach God like a child approaching his or her father. And if that's the case, I want us to dive into what Jesus teaches us this morning about prayer. So I'm going to read both of these passages first, starting in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd love for you to follow along with me, but it'll be right here on the screens. Luke 18, starting at verse 1, says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
And then I'm going to flip back a few pages to Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 5 through verse 13. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I want to start here in Luke 11, second passage that I just read, and I want to talk about the approach to prayer. First of all, our approach to prayer, and then we're going to talk a little about our relationship, the relationship of prayer. But what's the approach to prayer? This, these are pretty shocking statements, passages. Both of them are, a little bit. It's, immediately we sort of go, is that, is that how we should pray? I've never maybe understood these parables. See, at the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus is asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray, which is a great question for them to ask him, which is so interesting because these disciples were Jewish guys. They would have been raised in that culture, certainly would have been taught how to pray, and yet they see Jesus praying in such a way that it just begs the question. They go, Jesus, teach us how to pray like you do. And of course, Jesus, like all good communicators, proceeds to tell them a story. And in this story, we have a man who's in bed at midnight, but consider this, in an an electricity-less culture, midnight really was midnight. It would have been the middle of their night. They would have all been sound asleep. It's not like you and I today who go to bed maybe at midnight or at 11 because we have electricity and so we can stay up later. Like most people of the time, this man was living in a one-room house and there was most likely even only one bed in the house, which is why he says, my children and I are all in bed. The whole family was in the same bed, hopefully a king-sized bed, Depends on how many kids they had, but my goodness. But that was probably the culture of the time. Now, every time I I think of this, I can't help but picture this image that I've seen in in the Willy Wonka movies, right? Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I just love this, that every time at least Charlie's grandparents are all sort of zigzagged in the one bed in the house. Or maybe the whole family doesn't sleep there, but that's just, that's what I picture, right? They're all in bed. And this neighbor comes with a request, and he comes knocking on the door at midnight. And even, he's not coming with an emergency, right? He's not saying, my wife has had an accident, and she fell, and she's bleeding, please help. No, no. Instead, this man says, I'm entertaining a guest, and uh, you know what? Whoops, I don't have any food. I'm going to go to my neighbor's house and bother him in the middle of the night and ask for food. And so this guy knocks on the door, and there's no way for the man in bed, of course, to respond to the request without waking up his entire household. It says, however, though, eventually the man does get what he asks for. Why? I mean, Jesus says the guy gets up and wakes up his household, not because the neighbor is his friend, though he is, surely, 
But he gives him the bread because of his shameless audacity. What a great two words, right? His shameless audacity. What's so interesting here is that Jesus is putting forth an approach to prayer that really is all throughout the New Testament. Again, we see it in both of these two passages. And yet it really does rub us the wrong way. Like like I said, this is counterintuitive. This is an approach to prayer that goes against how we think prayer should work. It's just not common sense. We walk away from these stories thinking that we're perhaps just bothering God with our prayers, right? Are we bothering him? Perhaps he doesn't even like us and he just gets so fed up. Is God like this unjust judge? Or like this irritated friend who, yes, he's a friend, but he gives it to him for other reasons. This is not what we would expect Jesus to say. And yet we know, hopefully, don't, don't we, that we're missing something, that there is a, a bigger point that we're not getting out of these parables. Jesus uses this Greek word that I mentioned, is, is translated shameless audacity, and it's a word that even has the connotations of rudeness, right? R- rudely. I mean, if you're afraid, if, imagine if your neighbor came knocking on your door at 2 a.m. in the morning. You'd be like, this is, it's the middle of the night. What are you doing? And perhaps not rude in the sense of disrespectful, but certainly rude in the sense of boldness. That's a bold ask. And Jesus says this should be the model for our prayers. Pray like that, Jesus says. Bother God. And the word bother is even there, right? In fact, it's in both parables. Verse 7, don't bother me. But because the neighbor continued to bother, he got his bread. And so Jesus says to us today and to his disciples, pray like that. Really? Are we really bothering God? This runs against common sense and it even grinds against the notion that God is a loving, patient God, doesn't it? Turn over with me now back to Luke 18 if you have your Bible open. Here we have a very similar teaching about prayer, only different characters. We have an unjust judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought, it says, and a widow who's asking for justice. And again, the judge doesn't want to give the widow justice. He doesn't really care what she thinks or what she wants. But eventually, because of the persistence of the widow, it says, the judge says in verse 5, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. This woman might come and give me a black eye if I keep putting her off. That's not just persistent prayer. This woman is bringing feisty prayer, right? Aggressive prayer even, you might say. And Jesus says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him when? Day and night. Will he keep putting them off? Here's what we have. I mean, just language like this. Think of this. Day and night. Bother him. Shameless audacity boldness, feisty, aggressive prayer. That's the approach that we're given in Scripture. That's how we should come to God. And even a good metaphor is what Jesus says back in Luke 11, prayer is like knocking, right? Have you ever thought about this? No one ever just knocks once on a door. If you go to a door and just nothing would happen, Nobody would come to the door. If that happened at your house, you'd look at your wife or your kids and you'd go, did you, did you hear that? Honey, I think something just fell down. It's a great metaphor. Unless you do it repeatedly, it doesn't work. Prayer is like knocking. 
And yet this is still very counterintuitive. So let's try to make sense of some of these, these two parables, these teachings of Jesus. As I just said, first of all, keep in mind that these are parables. And a parable may have many points, but most of the time when Jesus tells a parable, there's always one main point. And so consider this, just to sort of break the ice a little or to break the tension. Jesus is asked the question, I'm sorry, he's not asked the question, how does God receive our prayers? That's not what he's asked. He's asked the question, how should we present our prayers? Therefore, Jesus is not teaching that God answers prayer like a friend or like an unjust judge who does it unsympathetically. That wasn't the point of the parable. That's not the point of either of these parables because that wasn't the question. The question is, how must we go to God in prayer, right? I love even how simply and plainly Luke says it. He says in in chapter 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them what? That they should always pray and not give up. This is how you should come to God in prayer. He says, relentlessly, persistently, shamelessly, boldly, and constantly. Now still, why, if we respect him, should we do it this way? And doesn't God even, doesn't he already know everything that we need and everything we're asking for? And and why do we need to keep coming back again and again if uh, many times we don't even get what we're asking for? God already knows. Isn't one time good enough? I love that. I mean, consider wives go, honey, do you love me? And your husband goes, I told you in 1975 that I loved you. Really? Over and over? That's what God says. Come to me over and over. See, the answer is right here in this text. Jesus gives us the answer, and it's an extremely important and telling answer. It's a way to judge our own hearts, and it's a way to live our lives differently starting today if we understand this. But so that's point one. That's the approach to prayer. How should we come to God? How should we approach prayer according to the Bible? Persistently, relentlessly, boldly. It's all over the place. But so now, secondly, how can we do that with God? So for the rest of this sermon, I want to focus on what's the relationship of prayer? What do I even mean by that? What's the relationship of prayer? How can Jesus tell us to do this kind of prayer, this shameless, persistent, bothering kind of prayer? Or a better question is, why would God want us to approach him like this? See, here's the answer. We can pray persistently, and maybe even I'd say you must pray persistently because we are his children. We're his children. And I'm not saying that God doesn't hear you if you're not his child, but that's how we can approach God in prayer. The key to this whole thing, I believe, is the Christian doctrine of adoption. I'm going to come back to that. But you see it here in the text in Luke Luke chapter 18, verse 7. I already read it, but again, he tells the whole parable, and the judge gives in. He doesn't want this widow to wear him out, or or worse, to attack him. But then look at verse 7. That's the key. Jesus says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Who are his chosen ones? His children, of course. Those who know him and belong to him. Those who call him their heavenly father. Those who are true believers, true Christians. And then back in Luke 11, Check this out. Again, Jesus tells the whole parable of the, the neighbors and tells the whole thing, but then he gets to verses 11, 12, and 13, and the metaphor changes, and he begins to talk about family, doesn't he? 
in terms of approaching a father. And here's why. Because in the Lord's Prayer, which we didn't really read this morning, but Jesus did not say pray this way, our friend who art in heaven. Jesus did not say pray like this, our judge who art in heaven. What Jesus tells us about prayer here this morning makes no sense except on family terms. It makes no sense any other way except on family terms. To trust in and yet to relentlessly and aggressively ask a father or a parent is something only a little child can do. Or let me put it another way, only little children have the persistence and the shameless audacity to to tug on a father's sleeve and yet on the other hand are able to do it with so much trust not to expect to understand everything that he does. Children are okay with that, little children are. Children ask persistently, and children ask trustingly. And only if we see ourselves as children and God as a father does this kind of prayer or this approach to prayer make sense. So let me break this down, those two things I just said. First of all, children ask persistently. For example, think about this. Think about the great kings and presidents of our day, the great rulers of lands, maybe down through the centuries. Maybe think about our own president or or some king somewhere, the only person who can approach the king of the land with such stubborn audacity is the king's little child. Isn't that right? Think about that. Imagine a king over a kingdom in some far, far away land, and this king has a sweet little princess of a daughter. She's four years old, three years old, four years old. First of all, as I said, that little girl can make no distinction between big and small asks. Little girl, all she sees is this is my dad, and he loves me, and I trust him, Children don't understand that. But then secondly, this little girl would come to, his, come to her father anytime, any place, repeatedly. Nobody else does that. Not the king's counselors, not the king's, or the, the cabinet, not the, not the press secretary. Not even the, the spouse can approach the king like that. This little girl would have unconditional access to her father, the king. She goes to the king at 2 a.m. in the morning. The only person who could do that at 2 a.m. in the morning to ask for a drink of water would be the king's four-year-old child. Imagine the king, or I'm sorry, the queen sort of rolls over 2 a.m. and says, honey, would you give me a drink of water? The king would go, what? Are you sick? Like, what's the matter? Why can't you get it? But think about parents, come on. If your three-year-old comes in the room and asks you for a drink of water, only a little child can do that. Even your spouse can't do it. Nobody else can ask you with that kind of persistence, but a small child can. You know, in my house, in the Zook house, we've got three kids, but our youngest, Callan, really is four years old, and this is exactly how he is. In fact, he came in last night, I think at 2.30 in the morning, and asked for a song. Not just for a drink of water, a song. And we're learning to say, because his older brother is sleeping right above him in a bunk bed, Callan, we can't sing you a song because we're going to wake up your little brother. He drives us crazy asking for things. I mean, and yet we love him to death, right? He's our child. He's, he's four years old and he's absolutely adorable. I mean, he's just absolutely adorable. I like shudder just thinking about it. He's very, he's so cute, but he's way more relentless than his older two siblings ever were. And so just for fun, yesterday I started keeping track of his asks right, after, right as he woke up. He woke up about 7 a.m., and uh, within the first three hours, here's some of the things. I, I'm certain I'm missing some. 
Will you get me yogurt, Daddy? Will you get me applesauce, Daddy? Will you make me oatmeal? Will you get me a napkin? Can I play on the phone? He asked that three times. Our kids love when they get screen time. Can I have a snack? He asked that five times. The Zook kids love food and screen time. Within the first three hours of the morning, can I have a snack? I'm like, it's, it's 9.30 in the morning. You just ate breakfast. All of the things that might be so rude or so inappropriate or uncalled for, for a friend or a neighbor or even my spouse to ask me, suddenly are not so with my child. Because being a, a child of the king changes everything. It's our identity. It's, it's adoption to sonship to daughtership. It changes everything. And therefore, there's no other way to explain this approach to prayer except to say that your identity was radically changed when you became a Christian. That adoption makes sense of this approach to prayer because Christian prayer only works on family terms. That's the only way this makes any sense. And in fact, no other religion would teach this about prayer because no other religion in our world says to approach God like a father. Listen to John 1.12. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, most people, most people today believe that to become a Christian means that you devote yourself to God, and if you do that, that means you suddenly now need to try really, really hard to obey all the commands of the Bible, and you need to pray regularly and read God's Word, and you need, you need to attend church services and serve and do all of these things. But also, we tend to think that if we do those things, then, then we'll receive God's blessing. And many times, we maybe don't even think about it, but we, we approach God more like a boss than we do a father. We approach God like an employee approaching his employer. And so we say to God, sure, God, I'll work hard for you. I'll do a great job. In fact, I'll do the best job I can. But I do also expect wages and benefits. I expect to get something in return. Many of us go to God like a worker goes to a boss, demanding things that we've earned, and we need to go him like a child goes to his daddy, barefaced, shamelessly, with nothing but trust, persistently, and we can go to him for big and little things. And you know what? We can go to him even when we haven't been working very hard for him because we're a part of the family and he's not going to cast us out just because we threw a temper tantrum, right? When you become a Christian, you become God's child. You're adopted into the family of God. And note this, hear me say this, adoption is not a change of nature or even a change of behavior. Adoption is a change of status by an act of a father. So that now you enjoy privileges and intimacy and unconditional acceptance that no one else has. Maybe some, in, some of you in here have been adopted. Just that imagery is phenomenal, is it not? That it's all over scripture. Nobody else has that kind of access except your brothers and sisters. And the reason that can happen is because Jesus Christ came to this earth not just as our example, not merely as an example for us, no, he came as a representative and as a substitute. And so Jesus stood in our place and took all of our sins on himself. And he paid the price for our sins by dying a brutal death on a cross. So that because he paid the price for our sins and our wrongdoing and our, our rebellion, we get all the rights of sons and daughters. We're welcomed into the family. That's how this works. 
And so there's, there's really two ways to approach God. God be my boss. And I'll live a good life. Please then, because I'm living a good life, you should answer my prayers. That's one approach. The other approach is God be my father. And I can't live a good life, but because Jesus has done it for me, because he has died for me, I refuse to be my own Savior and Lord, and I rest in him alone for my salvation. Therefore, answer my prayers because I'm your child. Those are two fundamentally different ways to relate to God. And you might even say those are two completely different religions. God is boss. God is father. Saved by my efforts, I'm saved by Christ's efforts. Listen to me, God, because I've worked for it. I've worked for you. Listen to me because Christ has worked for it, and now I belong to him. And I'm telling you this morning, if God is your boss, your prayer life will be anxious and inconsistent and desperate and many times frustrating. But if God's your father, your prayer life will be rich and consistent and and you'll persist in prayer and it'll be wonderful because it's like talking to a perfect heavenly father who you trust in. And of course, when we approach God persistently and aggressively, that doesn't mean we forget his majesty and his greatness. We don't do that. Look at the writers of the Psalms. Look at, look at the, uh, some of the characters in the Old Testament even. How Moses and Abraham talked to God. How they relentlessly asked him questions at times. Or again, the psalmist all over the Psalms. There are some bold-faced prayers in the Psalms, are there not? Look at Psalm 8. And David writes in the middle of the Psalm, What is man that you are mindful of him? God, I, I, I can't comprehend why you even listen to me like this. You've made us a little lower than the angels. But you do, and yet he starts the psalm by saying, Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God is so majestic and so holy. And the crazy thing is that it's actually because of that greatness that this kind of access to the Father is so absolutely unbelievable. And it's such an absolute privilege. So come on in this morning. Bother him. Ask him, throw it out, whatever's on your heart, and do it re- repeatedly and persistently, a drink of water or, or whatever it is, because he's, he's got it for you. Pour your heart out to him. And then secondly, and finally, I also said that it, a child asks trustingly. A child asks persistently, and a child asks trustingly. Look again at Luke chapter 11, verse 12. Jesus says, if your son asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? And of course not. A father wouldn't do that. But what's the implication? The implication, I think, is this. If your son asks for a scorpion, will you give him a scorpion? And again, the answer is no, of course not. Fathers don't do that. But see, the interesting thing about little children is that they instinctively expect adults to do all sorts of things that they just don't understand. It's just instinctive in them. They get it that they don't understand everything you tell them. They'll ask what you're doing, but if they don't understand it, they're okay with that. They move on. And if you do explain it to them, right? I mean, some of you in here are grandparents, and you're trying to explain something to your little kids or your grandkids. You, you do, how do you do it? You do it in the most simple, basic terms possible, right? You're trying to just get on their level. But most of the time, kids hear adults talking, and they have no way of comprehending what they're saying. And yet, they're okay with that, right? Again, I'm three-year-olds, four-year-olds. Your seven, eight, nine-year-old knows what you're saying. But little kids, 
They're used to this. A father goes to his, our child goes to his dad and says, Daddy, let me play in the street. Oh, Daddy, it's so, there's so much concrete. It just goes on all over out there. And Daddy, our, our driveway is sloped downhill. Can I ride my tricycle on the street? And you say, oh, honey, you, I'm sorry, you just don't understand. You just don't understand how dangerous it is. And, and, and cars come right up over the hill and you just might not see them. Oh, no, let's, a father redirects, Right? No, let's come over here and, yeah, let's play on the driveway or let's play a different game. Let's have fun this way. And therefore, uh, I, wanted to sh- I love this quote. If you understand prayer on family terms, you'd understand this. This is from Tim Keller. and I would say this is even maybe sort of my, uh, my theology of prayer, if I have one. He says, your father, your father always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Your father always gives you, God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. But we don't, and so sometimes this is hard and we, we don't understand it. He redirects. He says, I know you asked for this, but this thing over here will be better for you. You don't understand that right now. In fact, this is the hardest thing you've ever gone through, but I'm telling you, trust me. See, children ask persistently and children ask trustingly. And they do utterly both, and no one else does. So how do we apply this this morning in the time we have left? I'm not going to get uber practical today. I don't have time. If I did, I'd maybe mention these things real quick, that there's some great prayer apps out there. What's more practical than an app, right? There's one called Echo Prayer, and there's one called Abide that I found this week that are really great. I might mention the ACTS acronym, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Google it. It's a great form for your prayer life. Or the Brookside uh, prayer team that every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock in the Explore Room, a team gathers to pray over our ministries. It's open to anybody. Come Sunday mornings early for prayer. But I want to challenge you just a little bit this morning. For so many of us in here, we know we probably should pray more. But we don't or we're inconsistent and I want to give you a better vision of prayer this morning. That's what I hope I'm doing. Like I said, little kids, they just intuitively know who they can trust, right? That's why so much in Scripture is made of having a childlike faith, right? I mean, it's all over Scripture. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and have a childlike faith. Children know who they can trust and who they can't trust, right? And yet somehow for most of us, all of us, as we grow up, we tend to lose that childlike trust. So what does it mean to become a Christian? It means learning to trust again, like a little child. And again, it's hard to make that maybe more applicable, but think about prayer that way. Approach him like you would approach your dad. Imagine one final illustration. Imagine this. Imagine if you gave Aladdin's lamp to a four-year-old. said, here you go, honey. Any three wishes and they're yours automatically. What would you do if you give your four-year-old Aladdin's lamp and that was a real thing? You'd get out of town, right? You'd like, you'd get on a rocket ship and get away to Mars because my son would ask for all the Legos in the world to come like right here or just something crazy, right? He doesn't know what to ask for. I want to say this, you know, lovingly, and again, I don't know what you're going through, but if you're a Christian and you've been asking for something and God has not given it to you, Maybe, just maybe, you and I, we've asked for a scorpion. 
And we don't get it, and, and that doesn't even make it all easy, right? Because we go, God, how, how could you not, why would you not want to answer this prayer? Why would you not want to heal this person? I mean, I get that there's so many ways that we want to apply this, but maybe we just, we, we're, we're toddlers before the supreme God of the universe, and we just don't, we don't understand, and we need to trust. Prayer only works on family terms. Prayer is not Aladdin's lamp, and God is not a genie waiting to give us three wishes. So we go to our father, not to a genie. That's what prayer is. And I think of the times that Leslie and I say no to our kids. You realize how many times a day we say no to our kids. And you know what What happens? Sometimes they throw a fit, right? But usually it's short-lived. Hopefully it's short-lived. And then they come back and they say, okay, daddy, okay, mommy. I just don't understand. But I trust you. So many of us approach God like a boss or a judge or a genie and not like a father. We don't live like we're unconditionally loved and accepted, and we are. I'm telling you, when you begin to see that prayer only works on family terms, it will transform you into a completely different person, one who trusts instead of one who's maybe skeptical. Don't you see the beauty and joy of approaching God like a father I want you to see that this morning. And how does it work? I said this once, but it works because Jesus was cast out so that we could be brought in, right? Jesus was cast out. He was out, went outside the city and he suffered and died on a cross and he cried out to God, my God, my God, why? And for the first time and the last time, he heard no answer so that we could be brought in, right? He took all of our sin and all of our punishment, all of, all of our rebellion in that glorious exchange, and, and he heard nothing so that we could get brought into the family of God. That's how it works. It came at a price. This isn't just sentimental fatherhood, sonship stuff. Jesus paid a price for this. And so we delight in this promise of Jesus when he says in Luke 18, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? I tell you, yes. He says, I will see that they get justice and quickly. So would you run to him this morning and ask and seek and knock and keep knocking because you will find the door opens to a heavenly father who's waiting for you. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, I even think of my own dad. And Lord, it just wrecks me, God, every time. I think of who he is and how he loved me as a kid. God, there's, there's it's such a good metaphor. And God, maybe some of us in here have not had great earthly fathers, but God, I think of you being a perfect heavenly father. God, no other religion offers that. And so God, today, can we run to you as a father? And God, maybe some of us in here, even for the very first time, God, need to run to you and say, God, I've, I've been talking to you like a boss. And you're not a boss, you're, you're my father, and I trust you, and I'm going to continue to trust you. And God, I need your grace, and I need your salvation. God, come into my life and be my father. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for loving us like you do, for loving us with the open arms of a father. We pray this in Jesus' name.